0: Hey, you're on air with Ella. And today it is my pleasure to introduce you to Dr. Carrie Jones. Hey,
1: Carrie, welcome to the show. Oh, my gosh. Hi. Thanks for having me.
0: I'm thrilled to have you. And I'm also thrilled that Dr. Kara Fitzgerald introduced us a mutual friend. I've had her on the show. And any friend of Dr. Kara Fitzgerald's is a friend of mine. So, Carrie, welcome. Where are you today?
1: I am in sort of kind of sunny Portland, Oregon, but the rain is moving in. So okay. well,
0: welcome climbing, to like enjoy it. <laughs> enjoy that very tiny, tiny, sunny window. Yeah. Uh, Carrie, would you tell us who you are and what you do?
1: Absolutely. I am a naturopathic doctor and I got into naturopathic medicine and specifically women's health because I grew up in the South. I grew up in Kentucky and our health or whatever you want to call that class was taught by the high school football coach. So you can imagine how that went. <sighs> And when I was on the conventional medical track, I thought, this is not what I want to do. I was volunteering in hospitals. I was in surgery wings, pediatric wings, and I didn't like it. I thought, if this is medicine, this is terrible. I can't do it. This we're out. So I moved out to Portland, Oregon with a girlfriend of mine at, after college graduation. And I happened to find naturopathic medicine. The oldest naturopathic medical school is in Portland. And I found hormones. I found women's health. I found endocrinology. And my mentor at the time was in her 40s, so going through perimenopause, but quite the hormone expert. And I found over and over and over again, all the patients I would see, they would go, I don't know how this works. I didn't know that's what happens with my period or this transition or my PMS or my or how I got pregnant or how I don't get pregnant just routinely. And I thought, okay, so your health is what a one was about like mine. Like We didn't learn very much other than the P goes in the V and that's how you get pregnant. So don't, and you won't. And I knew I had to get much deeper into women's health and hormones. Did a two year residency in it, saw patients for a number of years who said the same thing. I would have fully menopausal women say to me, I, you know, I never understood my menstrual cycle. I knew it came every month, but I didn't understand how it worked. I didn't stand how, understand how it related to my hormone emotions brain, skin, body, libido, all the things. And I thought, man, what a huge disservice all of us women currently and in the past had to go through just to get where we are. So I ended up working for a lab called Precision Analytical. They are the creators of the Dutch test. I was their medical director for nearly a year. So I just stayed right in the realm of hormones, did thousands of consults with doctors all over the world and now just continue to do education because like you and your podcast I want this information freely out there I want women to not have to look at me and go um I don't know what's going on like why am I angry why can't I sleep why does my hair change why have I put on all this belly like where did this belly come from you know why do I have no libido why is everything dry and why does everything hurt hormones it'll do it the needle is moving.
0: i am I am very encouraged by the frequency and the quantity of conversations that are now floating around in the ether. and it feels very new. and it might be it might feel like that because I have recency bias. like I'm seeing it because I care about this topic now. But when I started this podcast almost ten years ago, gulp, uh I didn't I'd never heard the word perimenopause <laughs> oh,
1: wow. yeah. Even if you didn't recognize you were going to go through it, you would at least recognize what it is. Somebody would have talked to you about it. It'd make the news it'd make the research. You'd see it on social. Somebody. And it wasn't. It was like behind closed doors for a long time.
0: Well, and things are a-changing. So we have had Dr. Stacy Sims on this show, Dr. Vonda Wright, uh, Celine Yeager, and now we get to have you, and I'm so grateful for you and the work <laughs> that you're doing. And what I wanted to do today was take a lot of the Q&A that's come up from listeners post having these recent shows on perimenopause and kind of throw them at you so that you can bat them back to us with a bit more depth than we were able to go into on previous shows. Before we do that, though, Carrie, I have to say, I just have to get this anecdote on the table you joke about high school health class i mean unfortunately it's true like it's funny because it's true (laughs) but (laughs) but you know i and i can't cite a reference for this okay so come at me if i'm wrong but i have um several allopathic physicians meaning mds in my family And my understanding is that in traditional medical school, the length of time, literature, study hours, classroom hours spent on women's hormonal health is hovering somewhere around in four years, the six hour mark.
1: (laughs) There are some really wonderful functional OBGYNs here in the Portland area. One, when I was a baby resident, one I worked with, she's a, she's a brilliant gynecology surgeon. And she said the same thing to me. She said, you know more about hormones than I do. And I'm a traditionally trained OBGYN surgeon. And I'm having to relearn all of this. I know how to deliver a baby. I know how to put somebody on the birth control pill. I know how to work somebody up conventionally. I know how to do surgery if it's something's going on, but you know more about the actual day-to-day hormone thing than I do. That's one example that I was told 20 years ago.
0: Kudos to her for having a learning posture.
1: Oh, yes.
0: We need more of that, please, because I'm not slamming MDs. I am slamming the system,
1: (laughs) to be clear. (laughs) Absolutely. Yes, the system. The system doesn't view us and hormones is critically important.
0: Well, thank you for being a part of the system that is rectifying that I can assure you that one of the key questions we will ask and answer today is about how to find a resource because that question keeps coming up over and over again. So in this vein, I promise you we will get to that. Okay, Carrie, this is a random assortment, a grab bag of questions. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, let's start with alcohol. I had a listener. This was so funny. She was like, uh, she's in her late 40s, definitely in the perimenopausal phase. And she's like, so can I just not drink wine now? She's (laughs) drinking wine and basically feeling like she's having an allergic reaction. And I think a lot of people who drank wine quite happily in their 20s and 30s are asking, Dr. Carrie Jones, can I just not drink wine now?
1: When I was younger, so I'm 46, when I was younger in my thirties, I would have all my perimenopausal patients say to me, you wait, you wait on your 45th birthday. You can't sleep and you can't drink wine anymore. And that's That's the way it is. And I thought, nope, no, sure enough. Sure enough. So what happens and depending how you look at it, whether you drink more moderately or not that often, it doesn't seem to matter. When your hormones go through the transition of perimenopause, it changes even the way your liver does or doesn't function. You have little enzymes in your liver that break down alcohol. And if they're busy doing other things, breaking down other toxins, other hormones, or if they've been slowed down because you don't have the hormone you used to anymore, estradiol or progesterone, then you're going to struggle to break down alcohol. And what often, and, and it's alcohol in general. Um, a lot of times people will say to me, you know, I'm going to switch to a, like a clean vodka, I'm going to switch to a clean vodka on. Or tequila on the rocks. Right. Because health goals. Because health gold. It doesn't affect my blood sugar. And I'll say, that's great, except it's still alcohol. Or they'll say, I've switched to the organic biodynamic wine, you know, the subscriptions mm-hmm. that are out there, which is great, but it's still alcohol. And while you may find in the biodynamic wine section, you can have a glass you definitely find maybe you don't feel as great, you're kind of puffy, or if you get to two glasses, it's a problem. And it's not fair or fun, but alcohol really does cause a lot of problems in our body. And if you're already struggling with hormonal problems, they don't add that kindling to the fire.
0: Okay, it is not fair nor fun. And I have a couple of questions for you in this vein, but the let me let me recap what I'm hearing you say from a layman's point of view. Yeah. You're saying we simply cannot break down the alcohol as effectively as we used to?
1: Not like we used to. Okay. Not like because We are not like we used to be. We're going through perimenopause, our hormones, everything's shifting on the inside. It's reverse puberty. So imagine when you're a teenager going into puberty, now we are reversing out of it. So the efficiencies of things in our body are not the same. And that includes our liver's ability to break down alcohol like we used to. So even if you're like, I just want one, like I just would like to enjoy a glass of wine here and there, but I feel like crap. I'm like, I know because you're going through this transition and it is affecting your liver. Well, that's annoying. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I again, that's very fun. I trust me, trust me. I know. Yeah.
0: Here's here's the brass tacks of it all. Like I'm a very moderate drinker. It's I'm not I'm not a huge drinker. So I'll use myself as an example here. I actually do feel better if I have a vodka soda instead of a white wine. I genuinely do not respond as negatively. And again, it's one. It's not three. So there's probably something to be had there. And I. Bet that those biodynamic wines, et cetera, et cetera, probably don't hit quite as hard because there's less for your liver to filter through. Correct. And abstinence is not going to work for everybody. So, can I just ask can we, can I ask you a keep it real question if you don't mind? Because we get the message like, totally get you. If you're trying to feel better, if you are struggling, if you are trying to give yourself an advantage, like alcohol, not helping. Totally get it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. If you do want to have, two glasses of wine a week or whatever, you know, you only have a drink on days that start with an S, whatever. You're trying to be quite responsible with this, but you don't want to go full abstinence. Is there anything we can do, Carrie, to support our liver so that it tolerates it better? Or is there anything we can do full stop?
1: Yes. So this is where we joke in the field of functional medicine, we joke about biohacking alcohol, whether you like that word or not, it just is what it is. So first and foremost is yes, you can switch to a vodka soda because one, you'll get, you know, maybe it's mineral water, maybe just soda water and you'll get the, the, some hydration. The vodka is a lot cleaner. If you want wine, try to go for a biodynamic. They're becoming much more popular. The local grocery store here where I am, Labels them with a the green label, it'll say organic or it'll say biodynamic and just start looking for those to help. The thing about wine though, because a lot of people, a lot of my patients were like, but I don't like vodka. I don't want it, like, it's not the same as a glass of wine. Like, all right, so another issue wine can have is it can, it can challenge the histamine in your body. It mm. gives you that reaction. Mm-hmm. So, not only to detoxify it, your histamine, your that allergic sense takes over. So now you may feel red faced. You may feel kind of stuffy. You may be tired. You may be you know kind of puffy because of that histamine aspect. So what do you do? So first of all, hydration is important. So make sure you're getting your electrolytes. Make sure you're getting your minerals. Do it before you drink. Do it after you drink. Make sure that you're getting B vitamins. Take a B complex at some point before you drink, after you drink, because alcohol is really depleting um, on B vitamins. You use a lot of B vitamins to make your liver go round. And oh. so adding in a B, B complex of some sort uh, could potentially help sort of reduce that risk. The third thing is that there is an enzyme called DAO. It's an acronym, DAO. And it helps you break down foods or drinks that raise histamine, especially in the GI tract. And so by taking DAO, when you drink, it'll help pros- through the, process through the GI tract so you don't get quite a histamine reaction. Now, if you have a pretty we look, I feel like we to just be real responsible and, you know, put this caveat on there. If alcohol really really challenges you, if it's really bringing out a histamine like if it's really a problem, this isn't going to get you a jail, get a jail free card. You know, you still have consumed alcohol and it's still a problem for you. And you should probably rethink that. But just as you said, you know, like you're like, I just like the occasional glass of wine. This, these are the things I do. I'm like, great. I know it's going to dehydrate me. So electrolytes and minerals and water. I know it's going to use up B vitamins. So I'm gonna take B vitamins and I know I'm an allergic girl. So I'm going to just take my DAO, which is a supplement you can get. It's not, you know, a weirdo supplement. Now, if you want to get extra, extra special, then there are, of course, the liver. You'll see at the grocery store and online, you'll see all these like liver supportive supplements or teas with like milk thistle in it. Then that's the extra mile. Take, Take milk thistle, which is what we call hepatoprotective. So liver protective and protect those liver cells. And that can help. I get it. You're you're doing,
0: you're, you're performing a public service.
1: <laughs> I know everyone's writing this down. And
0: here's a little hack that I'll share. Carrie, you might want to either plug your ears or tell me why this is dumb. But I still, if I have particularly like a restaurant meal and a glass of wine, something like that, where I have no idea what I've just eaten and what oils it was made in, and I've had a cocktail, I will take two charcoal, two activated yeah. charcoal before I go to sleep. And the trouble with taking activated charcoal is it will also pull out if you're, if 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 you also take magnesium at night or you take a supplement at night, like it's going to pull things out of your bloodstream, including whatever supplements or pills or prescriptions you just took. So you have to bear that in mind, but I will still take two activated charcoal if I've had kind of a heavier night, if you will. Do you, are you plugging your ears or are you okay with that?
1: No, I'm totally okay with that. I agree with you though. So it's, if you went out, let's say it's your best friend's birthday, you went out, you had a glass of wine or champagne and then you come home and then you're like, oh, I listened to Carrie and Ella. We're going to do B vitamins and minerals and electrolytes and hydrate. You have to choose one or the other unless you plan to stay up another hour or so. So take, take the goods first, get those in right away, wait about an hour or so, and then take the charcoal. Okay. Right. Cause I want, I want the things that are going to get depleted in you first as you're processing the alcohol and then take the charcoal right after. Some people may argue the opposite. Some people may be like, no, no, take the charcoal to bind it up. But you almost have to wait longer before you can take the goods because char- charcoal does just what you says it does. It's a sponge. It'll suck it all up. So if you take charcoal and then you take minerals, guess what? You will not absorb your minerals. The charcoal will absorb it like a sponge instead. Okay. So I would almost rather you or take it be- take, take the goods before you go out. If your best friend's birthday is at 7 p.m. So put it in your pocket, put it in your purse, take it before you go, have the glass, and then come home and take your charcoal. It is definitely a pain in the ass multitasking thing you have to think through. Like things you never had to think through before, you're like, okay, but yes. So you, charcoal does work, but you you need both, just plan it accordingly.
0: Okay, fair enough. And last question in this vein, you mentioned that you hydrate, but you said a couple of times, you're not just talking about water, you're talking about electrolytes and minerals. Are you adding something to your water? Is there anything you want to say about that to us? Because when people hear hydration, they think water. And I know as an athlete, that if I drink nothing but water, I'm going to dilute my minerals, my electrolytes. So talk to us about what we should be doing there.
1: Yeah. So I don't really have an affiliation, but I use trace minerals, which is a company and I use element electrolytes, or I will do trace minerals with an extra potassium and add it to the water. Now you can also drink mineral water. You can ask the restaurant or the bar, Hey, do you have mineral water instead of just soda water? That extra added minerals can be really helpful and hydrating to you along with electrolytes.
0: All right. Super helpful. And in a pinch, you can use, (laughs) pun intended, in a pinch, you can use (laughs) a little dash of Himalayan sea salt and put that in your water. And I say that because I'm not sure everyone knows yet. I'm not sure I've accomplished my goal of letting the entire population of earth know, Carrie, that table salt is garbage for your body. Like iodized table salt is garbage and it actually leaches minerals out of you. And so I want to be super clear that I am talking about pink salt or Celtic sea salt or Himalayan sea salt. I am not talking about salt in a little packet or that you might find on a restaurant table.
1: It's not just salt. That's what people will say. I thought, you know, I thought potassium was important and I thought these other minerals are important. They are. In fact, the marker of hydration or dehydration in your cells is actually potassium, not sodium, although they're all bestie friends and, and very important. So then somebody will say, well, I'm taking Himalayan or I take a pinch of Celtic, but that's all sodium, right? No, those actually have a blend of minerals in it. So if you're just taking something, you're you're getting that that little bit of potassium, you're getting that little bit of magnesium, you're getting like all these other minerals in it. We just call it salt because it is, but it's misleading to the average American who thinks like, oh, it's table salt. It's only sodium. And it's not quite true.
0: Okay. These are such good nuggets. Thank you. Okay. So let's pivot (laughs) because I'm (laughs) going to throw something on the table that is going to confuse a lot of people. And that is castor oil. Now I am very recently getting interested in all of the things that castor oil does for you. And, and I would love for you to share some of the benefits and some of the applications. Can you give us a castor oil 101 from your point of view?
1: Yes. I've been using castor oil since 1999. So when people come at me and say, oh, you're just jumping on the castor oil bandwagon. I was like, oh, I was 22 years old when I started using castor oil. By the way,
0: what kind of insult is that? Is that a (laughs) diss of some kind? Like you are just jumping on the castor oil bandwagon. Like they are reaching.
1: (laughs) Social media is a wild place, isn't it? (laughs) Yes. Basically the 101 is that castor oil is quite anti-inflammatory. So we use it topically. We don't take it internally, although back in the day, somebody's grandmother or in, in other countries, they will take it internally because it expels worms and things. It's a great thing to take. It'll make you run to the bathroom Ugh. and get rid of things. So we don't use it that way. We use it topically for its anti-inflammatory detoxification mechanisms. It's And because of its anti-inflammatory We often think of castor oil, you will see or hear, rub it on your belly, rub it over your liver. You can actually rub it in things that are inflamed and not like your eyelashes and your eyebrows. If you have any kind of sort of inflammation that's related to the reason you're losing hair in places, even in shampoo, um, you've got scalp inflammation and that's part of the reason for your hair loss. Castor oil can be really helpful. I will put that out there with the biggest caveat of all which you have learned. Castor oil is thick. Oh, it's a mess. (laughs) It's goopy and it will stain. So just be aware if you do an actual full castor oil pack, which is where you have a uh, cotton flannel and you put castor oil all over it, you apply the flannel. Don't think like a flannel t-shirt. Think of like a white or, you know, sort of natural organic, flannel cloth. You put that over your belly and liver and you let it seep in, but you don't need that for the the scalp or the eyebrows or the eyelashes. Um, However, it is messy and goopy. The next thing I will say about castor oil, it is an oil. So quality counts, just like your, your olive oil or coconut oil or whatever you get. You don't want to buy it in a plastic bottle because it, it, it oils pull stuff into it. You know, that's how they, part of how they work. So you want to make sure the castor oil you get is in a glass bottle. You want to get make sure it's hexane-free. We don't want any chemicals in in our oil. We don't want to get a chemically processed castor oil that was in a plastic bottle and now we're rubbing it in our you know eye, eyebrows and all over our belly. We, we want as clean and organic and least processed as possible. And we want it cold-pressed, kind of like our own olive oil. You know, we want to kind of treat it same-same. We want it clean in a glass bottle, no hexane, cold-pressed. And I love it. It will be careful of your sheets. Be careful at your t-shirt. <laughs> it was it is a goopy mess, but man does it work. I just love it.
0: Okay. So I have a couple questions about this. And and by the way, guys, I will link to all of this stuff in the show notes because I just bought a new castor oil pack, like a flannel and a glass bottled castor oil, hexane free. And I'm going to share with you a couple of ways that I'm using it, Carrie, and a couple of ways I'm hearing you can use it. So I was putting it at night on my eyebrows and on my eyelashes because I thought it would promote growth. Am I misled? No,
1: I do it every night as well. Pretty much. And I even do it as a, um, I will put my under eye cream on and then I will put castor oil around it as well. Just dab it. I have
0: heard that if you put it on over your creams like that, that it actually helps with absorption. Is that just TikTok wisdom?
1: Anecdotally, my N of one, I noticed a major difference. So I use it pretty consistently. And I also put it on my eyelashes and on my eyebrows.
0: Okay. Well, your skin looks amazing. So if Thank that's you. not working, then it's just magic. Okay. All right. And then another thing that I understand is if you're having belly cramps, or if you're going for liver detox, and that's when that flannel is a good idea, you can you pour the oil on the flannel and you sort of wrap yourself with it. And then that will help keep your your clothes clean because you've got the flannel protecting you. But I also understand I haven't done this. I also understand you can put it over your breasts. If you're having like really tender breasts, maybe during PMS, that sort of thing is that does that sound sound to you?
1: Yes. It's so anti-inflammatory. It also is a lymph mover. So, you know, we have our lymphatic system. And one of the great things for over the belly or the liver or over the breast is the idea behind it is we can reduce inflammation and get that that stagnant lymph moving. Our, our lymph is sort of like, think of like a sewer system. Like we want it running. We want it flowing. We don't want it backed up because then we get... We feel kind of icky. We get swollen lymph nodes. We feel puffy. We have that, you know, like our water balance is off. And it can really help that as well. So when you, the majority of your lymph is in your belly, you know, almost all of your immune system, most all of your lymph tissue is in your abdomen. Um, But we have, as as women, we have a lot, of course, up in our breast area and our armpit area. And so one of the potential reasons for sore, tender breasts is just sort of this gunked up sewer system. And it backs up into the fatty part of the breast tissue, and now it's they feel enlarged, they feel painful. And by doing some lymphatic massage up in there, which is literally just massaging the armpits and the sides of the breasts, and using the castor oil to reduce inflammation, anecdotally, I have had so so many patients through the years who were like that alone made a world of difference. The stuff is magic. Okay, so they're not putting a lot of. NIH funded literature research behind this, you know, unfortunately, a lot of it is just decades of use. And we pass it down to each other or friend telling friend or sister telling sister, you tell your neighbor, and it's working. And that's all the feedback that I get.
0: Yeah. And I want to say, I mean, there's not a lot of money in natural solutions. You know, easy, yeah. cheaper solutions aren't getting researched. So we don't have time to go into that one today. But um, <laughs> uh, also, I just want to say, and I don't, I don't have the year, I don't have your complete history on castor oil, but my best guess is that castor oil therapy has been around for millennia, I believe.
1: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> for a really, 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 really long time. Yeah. So
0: <laughs> castor oil, if it helps with inflammation, you can put it directly on an inflamed muscle, right?
1: You can. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And just so you know, I'm not asking for a friend.
1: (laughs) Of course not. And then
0: also, if it does promote hair growth or it it helps with something that then facilitates hair growth, can men not put it into their scalp? They can.
1: Women, too. I mean, women, too, of course. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. In fact, they make some shampoos shampoos already that have castor oil. You know, of course, people have figured this out and, and built it into shampoo. Or you can take your favorite shampoo and mix a little bit of castor oil. No, I will, you know, it is, we've mentioned this a few times, it's thick and goopy. So you could do it every day if you don't mind. You're going to have that look in your hair that you've had oil in it. It's hard to get out sometimes. So... I definitely have people who are like, I just save it for the hair mask day or I just save it like one on a weekend. I just goop it up with castor oil. It takes me like four times to wash it out, but I leave it in there five, 10 minutes and then, you know, support it that way. So just if you try this, please be eyes wide open that it is a thick and goopy oil as magic as it is. And just like any oil in your hair, it is not a one and done wash out. You probably will have to rinse it out a few times to get it out, but it- yeah.
0: You have been warned.
1: You have been warned. Exactly. And please also be wary of your kids and your pets. You know, if you've got castor oil on your belly or your face or something, and your cat or your dog licks it, it's not good for them either. We just like if we take it internally, things get expelled. It's the same for them. We it can be very toxic internally, so we don't want them licking you. Be careful. It is okay for kids to use it topically, but again, it's hard for kids to stop them from putting their hands in it and then in their mouth. So just make sure they know. One, it's goopy, and two, don't take it internally.
0: Okay, let's talk about hormones. Can you please just remind us before we jump into this conversation about the hormonal triad? Just remind us what we're talking about here. What is the hormonal landscape in the perimenopausal conversation?
1: So when we are cycling, our ovaries do a lot of the heavy work. Our ovaries, we have to make androgens first, testosterone DHEA, androsinodione, those cross over. So on our on our let me in our ovaries, we have follicles, and our follicles have an outer layer of cell and an inner layer of cell. On the outer layer, we make the androgens like testosterone. They float across inside to the inner layer, and that's where you make estrogen. Now you have these two types of cells, and when you ovulate, those two cells magically transform like Cinderella into cells that make progesterone. So out of your ovaries, you can make testosterone, estrogens, and progesterone depending on where you are in your cycle. Now, out of your adrenal glands, which is where you make cortisol, you will also make some androgens. You'll make what's called DHEAS and you will make androstenedione, which is a precursor to like testosterone and also DHEA. So you make a little bit there as well. Then out in your the rest of your tissues, like let's say your fat tissue, you can take those androgens and you can magically transform them into estrogens. The process is called aromatase with an A. Now I bring this up because people go, well, where are hormones made with your cycling, predominantly in the ovaries. When you go through perimenopause, that communication between the brain and the ovaries starts to falter. The ovaries, those follicles, they don't really want to do it anymore. or unfortunately, they like blast too much. So you have some months with a lot of estrogen some months with no estrogen. You have some months with some progesterone and some months with no progesterone. And in between there, that testosterone gets caught in the cross. Like sometimes you have a lot and you get this thickening of those cells that make uh, testosterone. It's called hyperthecosis. And then it goes away. And so then you drop down in testosterone. And then once you're fully menopausal, you don't get that ovarian production anymore. That, That factory is closed. So now we're entirely are relying on the adrenal glands and we're relying on the extra tissue in your body, like your fat tissue, to do that aromatase thing and make estrogens out of your androgens. So it becomes this very convoluted, it's not the right word, but like very comprehensive or complicated process. But you, when you go through the transition, it's like if you had a really well-known, well-done factory that's been producing widgets for decades. And now it's like time to retire and the owner doesn't keep, want to keep going anymore. And so they slowly start to slow the factory down, but they don't tell the rest of the world that we're doing this. They don't outsource it. They don't give it to another factory. They just sort of shut down. And now all the like customers and all the suppliers are like, where'd the factory go? And so now the adrenal glands and the extra tissue, like your fat tissue, have to figure it out real quick. In between all that, your thyroid gland, which makes, of course, your T4 and some of your T3 is best friends with and reacts to the ovaries and the adrenals. So a lot of women in perimenopause notice either their thyroid problems get worse or for the first time ever, they have a thyroid problem because the loss of those ovaries, the mismatch in communication, this shifting transition will affect the communication to the thyroid gland as well. And so it's not fair It's not always fun, but I do need women to know this because when they go into their doctor and say something's wrong, please test me. If your doctor says, we just tested you last year, or you just had a normal two years ago, I'm sure you're fine. You are in a whole different space now. And it is important to test and follow up because of this communication back and forth.
0: But I have a question about lab testing based on what you just said. The fluctuations are extreme, right? Like, isn't that what perimenopause is? So on Tuesday, your T might be high and on Thursday, it might be low. How do lab, how are they effective if they're taking a single snapshot in time and you're a different person two days later?
1: If it depends where you are in perimenopause. So for example, I'm 46 and I really regular cycles, pretty consistent, 26 days, some months I ovulate, some months I don't, I can tell. So I'm at the point in perimenopause where if I go get my blood work done on the appropriate day, which is in the second half of your cycle, your luteal phase, that I'm going to be about what I think I am. Cause I'm not wild. I don't feel wild. I'm not having the wild symptoms of hot flashes. Some days, but if you are there. So I'm a a candidate for testing. And it's also important to test everything around me. I need to know what my lipids are doing, my cholesterol. I need to know what my glucose and insulin are doing. It all shifts, sadly, for the worse in perimenopause. It can. I want to know what my red and white blood cells are doing. I want to know coming into perimenopause, what is my iron doing? What is my D doing? What is my thyroid right now? There are a lot of other markers we forget about that also can change if you're listening to this and you're like, that's not me, I'm the wild one. I go, I get a period every two weeks and then I've gone four or five months without a period. And then magically at the most inopportune time on my family vacation, my period came back. I'm like, yep. So in that case, we don't test your estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, but we still test everything around it because I want to make sure your thyroid hasn't completely fallen down. I want to make sure you haven't become anemic because if you bleed every two weeks, you're going to bleed out all your iron. I want to make sure that your glucose and your insulin are okay, and you're not headed to metabolic disease because you don't have the estrogen and progesterone that you used to. And when we say estrogen, I predominantly mean the the powerful, potent estrogen called E2, which is estradiol. That's what we test. So I'm looking at those peripheral markers to make it as easy as possible for you in perimenopause, so that when you get into full-on menopause, no periods for 12 straight months then you are set up for success and to thrive as opposed to really suffering do you
0: suggest you mentioned getting tested in the second fa- the second half of your cycle what day do you recommend is day 19 the right day if you're shooting for blood tests
1: if 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 you have a if you're still having regular cycles you want to ideally test 5 to 7 days after ovulation So if you can tell if you're ovulate by your mucus changes, maybe you're wearing a wearable that tells you your temperature has gone up. So you know you just ovulated. Ovulation, the act of making progesterone from ovulation is warming. So our temperature goes up a degree. So you can tell some of maybe you get twinges. If you can tell some of these things, you will count forward five to seven days. So I'm a 26-day girl, and I tend to ovulate, if I'm going to, on day eleven. So I will take day 11, count forward five days. So I'm more like a 16, 17, 18 girl as opposed to a day 19 girl. If you are a consistent 28-day cycle, then yes, you may fall day 19, 20, 21. But if you're listening to this going, well, I'm consistent, but I'm more like 32 days, then we'd have to shift you up. We have to shift you closer to to the 32-day, right? You may be more like a day 25 you collect, day 26 you collect.
0: Somebody is listening and saying, how do I know when I'm ovulating?
1: Yes. When most, so symptoms is one thing. Does your mucus change? Do you go, do you go from like normal everyday mucus to like slippery slip and slide type mu- mucus? That's like, we call it that fertile mucus. Yes. You can still get that in your forties and fifties. If you're still cycling, you can still ovulate. Do you get twingy cramps in the middle of your cycle where you're going, oh, it's not my period. Why am I getting little twinges? Oh, I bet I'm ovulating. If you wear a wearable and your your temperature goes up a degree, some people are tracking their temperature, like a basal body temperature. I'm lazy, I don't. I wear an aura ring, and my aura ring will jump up a degree the day after ovulation because progesterone is warming. You can also get real technical though, you can do an ovulation predictor kit. It's in the same aisle of the grocery store as pregnancy tests or or the drugstore. And it's called a LH kit or a pregnant OPK ovulation predictor kit, just ovulation kit. And you pee on them like a pregnancy test. And when they're positive, you're going to ovulate here probably within the next 24 to 48 hours. So you may have done those back in the day when you're trying to get pregnant. And now we're just doing it to hone in on when to collect. Now, if you don't ovulate, so if you're still a 26 or 28 or 32 day girl, and you're like, I have no idea. I don't know when I ovulate. Then you're just going to aim for the middle of the second half of your cycle. So, like me, I'm a 26-day person. So I'm going to collect around day 17, 18. You're a 28-day person, you're going to collect around day 20, 21. You're a 30, you're You're just going to, you're going to do some rough math in your head, and that's when you're going to collect. If you have regular cycles still. If you do not, if you're wild and wild and out, two weeks, then two months, then three weeks, then six months we, we, then we don't, we just collect whenever, like we just, it doesn't matter. Just, collect. You just
0: close your eyes and hope for the best. <laughs>
1: Stick your arm out, get the blood draw, do the test. Because in that moment, the estrogen and progesterone are not they're They are what they are for that day, but they're not going to help me. You know, that's not consistently for you, but I want to know everything else. Glucose, lipids, thyroid. I want to know all that stuff.
0: You mentioned Wearable tech. You mentioned your aura ring. I have an aura ring and I stopped wearing it uh, largely because I got annoyed at the fact that they started charging both my husband and I separately, you know, monthly to have a subscription. And you pay a lot of money for the aura ring and then you have to pay for the subscription every single month. And I say that just because um, I don't want to promote something without telling people uh, about that caveat. But can you talk to us, like my customer service issues aside, Carrie, can you talk to us? Please, about why you wear an aura ring or other wearable tech and whether you like whether you actually specifically recommend that to people right now.
1: I'm so glad you brought that up. I like wearables because it's me against me or me with me, and it can be a whoop band, it might be your Apple Watch. I don't care what wearable you happen to wear. There are new rings coming on the market, there is competition for aura, so keep your eyes out for those as well. But I like to know alcohol is a really good one. If I have a glass of wine guaranteed my stress markers on my aura ring go up. My sleep, my deep sleep, my REM sleep, terrible, horrible. My heart rate goes up. And sometimes, obviously, I know I'm doing it to myself. I'm like, I don't care. It's my best friend's birthday. I'm having a glass of wine. It's just like, suck it up, aura ring. But it's me against me. And it can be really helpful also on days where I wake up and I think to myself, I feel terrible. I'm low energy, I'm going to push it. I'm going to go to the gym and push it and then I look at my aura results and my aura says absolutely not. You're stressed out, you're not recovered, you didn't sleep. Don't push it, you'll be worse tomorrow. And it's nice feedback. On the flip side, recently we've had a big change of weather here. We've gone from our beautiful sunny summers to really awful rainy gray miserableness for s- 6 months. And I thought you you get that seasonal affective disorder sometimes in the transition and I thought I was getting sick. I was really tired and I woke up and I thought, that's it, it got me, it got me, I'm sick. And my aura ring was like, no girl, you're fine. Your heart rate variability was fine, your sleep was fine, your stress markers are fine, your heart rate's fine, everything's fine. Get out of bed and do your thing. And it was really nice feedback to me to be like, fine, (laughs) okay. And I find that with any wearable, whether it's a continuous glucose monitor, whether it's your Apple Watch, it's that motivation or direct immediate feedback That can be what some people need to motivate them or when they're like, I don't know, I'm so overwhelmed, I don't know where to start, and you get immediate feedback, then you know, oh, this works for me. Oh, this isn't working for me. So I like that in wearables if it fits in the budget.
0: Thank you so much for that. And do you have any concerns at all when it comes to the Whoop or the Aura or the Apple Watch? Do you have any EMF concerns or Bluetooth or like basically just any like the detriments of wearing tech? Does that concern you at
1: all? So with the Aura Ring, I'll be honest, I don't know with Apple or Whoop. I'm not a I'm I'm a bracelet person. I am not a watch person. So I don't have an Apple Watch. Never had. But with the Aura Ring, you can turn it in um, airplane mode, and then when you connect. You, when you put it on its charger, it'll connect to the app and the phone and okay. then download all the data. So the whole time it's in airplane re- mode, it's still collecting data on you. It's just not transmitting it anywhere. So a lot of people I know just keep it in airplane other than when they charge it and connect it. And that's fantastic.
0: Yeah, I'm a little I'm a little wary about that sort of thing. You know, I I do have Bluetooth headphones, and I don't think they're the best thing going. So I try to only wear them when I very specifically need them, obviously. But like, I won't get an Apple watch for that reason, because I just don't want it continuously on my on my wrist. And then, you know, I wear a Garmin because I train for triathlon and I only wear it when I'm training and then yeah. I take it off. Yeah. But I I have no idea. We, I have no idea, but I just want to get your take on that really quickly.
1: Okay. It's, I mean, with the, you know, I mean, I don't know how people feel about the 5G, but when you, and like six is coming or seven or whatever's next, I don't know. I still do that. I still keep it in Bluetooth and connect it and then it's on and then I put it back and then it's back on my finger. But does that make a little bit of difference to the fact that I'm surrounded by 5G. I, I know. know. I, it's a great question. Oh, or I take my cell phone with me. And even in my house, I'm on, you know, I'm on Wi-Fi. But when I'm out and about, it's connecting and pinging off all the towers. It's, I, I we just can't, I wish I'd want to, li- like, I can't just live in a fair day field box all the time. I know, time. man. I know. I do the I best know. I can and hope for the best.
0: <laughs> I know. It's like asking about my aura Ring while I live inside a literal microwave.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it feels that way. Yeah.
0: Okay. Let's get two more questions on the table before we run out of time here. And the first one is back to hormones. There is... A lot of controversy around testosterone pellets, and some people have no idea what I'm talking about, um, but we have talked about it on the show before. But essentially, you know, uh, people that may be more athletically inclined may have run into this faster than people who are simply having their perimenopausal journey or their menopausal journey. Um, and, and quite simply, taking exogenous testosterone, whether it's in a gel or a cream or in pellets or something of that nature, I say exogenous, but pellets are stuck in your bum, so I'm not sure I can call that exogenous, actually. There's topical testosterone. You can take shots, and you can uh, have pellets inserted under the skin. Um, I am asking about pellets specifically, just because I'm only just becoming aware this year as to how controversial those are. And I know a lot of people who are almost addicted to them because they feel like they, you know, they got a full recharge when they discovered testosterone pellets and the gels and the creams were doing nothing for them. And these are not people who are menopausal. I'm not talking about this in the traditional sense of menopause hormone therapy. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about taking testosterone for the boost that testosterone offers after 40 years old. So my question for you after that very lengthy intro, (laughs) Carrie, is why is there so much controversy around testosterone pellets specifically? And what's your take?
1: The thing with pellets, well, let me start with this. I am for whatever works. So I am not against pellets, but I am like anything against pellets. a, a procedure or a hormone that is, if you're going to see somebody who is not well-versed in it or who isn't doing a comprehensive workup or explaining the pros and the cons or has never tried hormones with you before, if you are a hormone virgin and you're like, I just heard this thing, I want to get a pellet, You often, not always, often the pellet inserters are like, we have to start with hormones. Let's see how you react to hormone." Once the pellet is inserted into your hip or your your upper booty area, it's in. They can't get it out. So if it's the wrong dose too much, you could get all the side effects of testosterone. So you could get the hair loss, the cystic acne, the anger, the irritation, um, the hair growth in places we don't want. It's called hirsutism. And all we can do in the meantime is mitigate, deal with the side effects, the symptoms. And of course, immediately you're going to go, I hate this. I'm never getting a pellet again. Whereas if you had started your hormone journey with like, well, let's see how you react to progest- or, uh, to testosterone, let's give you testosterone cream, or let's give you testosterone like the tiny injections. I will say testosterone for females is not, there's no FDA approved one version yet. Unfortunately, because testosterone is really important in our body as well, we just don't make as much of it as our male counterparts do. And that's the issue but we need it. Absolutely. It's helpful for mood. It's helpful for bones. It's helpful for libido. It's helpful for a lot of things in the body. So I think the testosterone pellet is controversial. And, and this is just my thinking assumption. That's pellet industry. You can make a lot of money. You can, they're, they're out of pocket. Insurance doesn't usually cover them. You need to pay cash. You can make a lot of money. And if you don't know what you're doing and you give somebody too big of a battery pack on too small of a person, then they're mad and they're angry and they've cystic acne and hair loss and all the things and it can last 3 to 4 months. But my colleagues who are well trained, well versed, long experience with hormones usually do a great job. And usually their patients are like, "Woohoo, I did cream or I did a lozenge or I did an injection and it was like, eh. "It was like, meh, it was like okay." And when they tried for them the pellet, just like you said, it felt like a battery pack got put in. And so I Advocate, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, I've never done hormones before. Pellets sound great. I could use a battery pack. Don't do that. Try hormones other ways. Let's see how you do with hormones in a cream or in a lozenge or something we can control way easier and find your right dose before inserting something into your hip that we can't take out. And you may or may not have side effects. Also, my friends um, who do pellet insertion generally start out with a low dose. They're like, hey, look, it's your first three to four months. Let's do the lowest dose, see how you react. And then we we can incrementally go up from there. As opposed to, I'm anti-aging, you want to be anti-aged, you want your libido back and energy and bone health. Like, I'm going to give you a high dose and oops, too high. Now Now it's in your system. So that's my impression of the controversy around the testosterone pellet and uh, the questions you can ask of, are you a hormone virgin or are you been in the game a while and you would like to try them? Maybe try for a low dose, make sure you're getting some testing, make sure it was somebody who well-trained in pellets. This isn't a side gig for them. Somebody who's done it a long time and understands them and then you should be okay.
0: That makes good sense. And at the end of the day, of course, the goal of this show is to get people to help them become more aware and to help them ask questions, not to tell you what to do, as you all know, but to help open your eyes to some things that you might not have known, get some information on the table, and then again, equip you with better questions. Okay. Carrie, in that vein, this is not my second question. This is just one B.
1: (laughs) Yes. Love it. Let's do it.
0: I know you can't just take estrogen. You have like estrogen and progesterone uh, are, are, Always, if you're taking estrogen, you need to take pre- progesterone. Is that correct to protect your uterus? If you have a uterus, I should. If say. you have a uterus, yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. All right. But for people who can't sleep and they know that pre- the loss of progesterone is impacting their sleep, can you quote just take progesterone? Yes. Okay. No. So you can talk you to, you to have your to doctor take it about that
1: orally. Okay. Top. So here's how the mechanism works. If you swallow progesterone as a capsule or a lozenge or something, when you swallow it, it goes to your liver first. The liver has to, the liver is the gate check to everything you eat, drink, breathe, or swallow. When it gate checks it, it will break it apart into some other pieces called metabolites. And progesterone metabolites, most of them, a lot of them, cross up into the brain. And when they cross up into the brain, they touch on activate your GABA receptors. GABA is your calming, your soothing, your relaxing receptor. It's the same receptor like Xanax works on or Ativan, but doesn't have that addictive quality. It's just progesterone. So when you take progesterone, it goes to the liver. The liver breaks it apart into this other molecule. The other molecule crosses into the brain, says, hey, GABA, do your job. GABA says, cool. I'll make her relaxed, calm, sleep, the whole thing. Great. If you do it topically, a progesterone cream because you don't get to go through the liver like you do when you swallow it as as the first pass through is what we call it, then you may not get that benefit. So I'd say topical progesterone, it's hit or miss. If it's going to help sleep, it may help all your other symptoms. It may help hot flashes. It may help night sweats. It may help some of the mood stuff that you're going through, but it may not help the sleep. So you might find if you're listening to this and you're on topical progesterone and still struggle to sleep, maybe something to swallow is the better option for you. And if you're not on any hormones at all, but this sounds like you go ask your practitioner and say, I can't sleep. I'm also in my forties or fifties. Could I consider trying a progesterone that I swallow a progesterone pill? And you want progesterone, which is bioidentical, not progestin, which is synthetic. Don't do that one.
0: Okay. Carrie, thank you so much. And just, this is N equals one. This is just a per- personal anecdote, but I'm not symptomatic. I don't, I, I have not entered the apocalypse phase yet. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So uh, that's one of the reasons I'm so interested in this topic is I'm trying to skirt around all of it and <laughs> just yes. sail into the next decade. However, I am not sleeping as well as I used to. That is the yeah. one thing that I'm experiencing right now and it's driving me a bit mad, but I'm taking a lavender oil pill and it, yeah. guess what it's made out of la lavender oil and it is it it helps enormously so i just want to share that because obviously and we've talked about it before on this show there are lots of natural things to try first so just wanted to get all of that on the table okay
1: i will say though that progesterone is not the only thing that affects sleep um in fact estradiol plays a big role in our rem sleep and so like the fall asleep stay asleep duo progesterone and estradiol play a role there so while progesterone may be Maybe let's say a second line therapy. You've tried some natural, all the natural things. You've done the sleepy time teas. Maybe you've tried lavender, and they didn't have the luck you had. And they're like, okay, I'm ready for progesterone. Screw this. I need to sleep. And you know, you're like, I feel better, better. But we've all we also know their estradiol is low. Their hot flashes, their night sweats, they're dry. They have vaginal dryness and eye dryness, and like they're having all the like low estrogen symptoms. Um, Estradiol does also help sleep as well. It just doesn't get as much press as progesterone does. So in which case, you may need a little estradiol with your progesterone for sleep as well.
0: Carrie, you're a font of information, an absolute <laughs> font. Okay, last question for you, and I promise this at the top of the show, the number one challenge that women over 35 are having, they don't know how to find a carry. They don't know Mm -hmm. how to find a resource to help them through. And please bear in mind that my listeners are all over the world. And so it's okay, if we speak to this from a US perspective, because maybe that will help, there'll be a trickle down effect. But what is our first line of defense? Like what do people do when they need to find someone to care about this issue? And as I just set the table for this question for you, please bear in mind, listener, that you have to sometimes understand that a lot of this has to be paid for out of pocket like the american healthcare system does not have your back here <laughs> you <laughs> please know that a lot of these resources are going to be out of pocket and that's not the conversation for today carrie but I-, I do think it's worth noting carrie where does somebody start when they're going to their traditional doctor and they're about to bang their head against the wall because they are not getting the help that they need
1: The first thing I want to say is that it's okay to add to your healthcare team. I have had a number of comments and DMs of people who say, but I love my OBGYN or I love my primary care. I'm like, oh, absolutely. There's nothing wrong with them. Keep them, right? Exactly. But it's okay to add to the team, right? So we're going to just find you a hormone person. You keep seeing your OB for your pap. You see your primary care when you're sick and we're going to add your hormone person because that's what they study and that's what they know. So let me give you a couple of resources that might be sort of broadly helpful. One is you want to find somebody who actually understands and prescribes hormones and doesn't just dabble in it. There are a lot of people who are new or maybe just dabble, which is great. I'm glad and if they're not there yet, there's there are a number of people that hormones is the thing that they do. So here's a couple of websites where you can search by your zip code and then you can you will have to do some due diligence. This isn't, you know, practitioner on a platter. And go through some websites and see who might resonate with you. So first and foremost, if you go to um, IFM, so IFM.com, they have a find a provider. We didn't talk about this, but I mentioned I used to work for a hormone lab called Dutch Test. If you go to dutchtest.com, they also have find a provider. They're a little more apt on dutchtest.com to be hormonally savvy because they're actively running a hormone test and on the find a provider site. So dutchtest.com might be a good one. If you are specifically looking like for me as a naturopathic doctor, you can go to naturopathic.org, org, same thing, find a provider be naturopathic. If you are out of the country, let's say you're listening to this somewhere in Europe, somewhere in the UK, somewhere in Australia, somewhere in New Zealand, you're in luck. There are a lot of distributors. If you are anywhere in Europe, anywhere, you can look up Nordic Laboratories nordic laboratories and they can find you a practitioner if you were in the uk um you are in luck because there are actually a number of menopausal clinics you maybe just didn't know to search for them so if you search for one you can look up nordic they're also in the uk but two you can actually search menopausal clinic london or menopausal clinic whatever there are several they just aren't in the nhs system and so they don't like register If you are in Australia, as if you're down under, um, you can look up RN labs. So the letter R, the letter N labs, they can find you a practitioner. If you are in New Zealand, you can look up Nutrasearch. They can find you a practitioner. So thankfully, there are a number of functional resources across the globe that um, really can be quite helpful uh, to getting you a hormonal provider where you may just have to send them an email and say, hey, I'm in this country or this city. I'm looking for somebody who's you know, really savvy into hormones. Who would you recommend? Can you send me a list and go from there?
0: Okay, I love the concept of adding to your team instead of some sort of combative notion that we have to take out and replace. So, so of course, why not have a hormonal specialist added to your team of resources? I hope it goes without saying my dear listener who has joined us today that the entire list that Carrie just shared with us will be in the show notes for this episode, along with references to every single ounce of wisdom that she has dropped today. Carrie, thank you for becoming an instant friend of the show. We Cannot wait to have you back on. And please tell us where we can find Dr. Carrie Jones.
1: Absolutely. I'm on social media, I'm at Jones. My website is drcarriejones.com And I will say I didn't mention this in like where can you find a provider? But as of recently, I am working with a group called Nutrition Dynamics. So nutritiondynamic.com. They are functional coaches and dietitians that works with a uh, functional clinic, functional hormone clinic called Vital Health. And so nutritiondynamic.com, if you were here in the States, may be a great one for that functional coaching with a medical partner. Um, So it is a little bit bigger of a team, but great, great, great resources and outcomes uh, that could be helpful as well.
0: Thank you so much. Carrie. we appreciate you. Thank you.
1: Thanks for having me on.
0: Okay, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed today's show and got something out of it that you can use. If you did and you want to learn more, find me on Instagram at onairwithella or get the show notes and all the links shared today at onairella.com. There's no if, it's just onairella.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you for sharing the show and thanks for inspiring me. You are quite simply awesome.